Well, I hope you've enjoyed those, um, these readings from our sisters and brothers who can speak in multiple languages, and Carmen served us well this morning in German. Um, I was thinking this week I learned something that I, that I hadn't realized um, until this week when I was thinking about the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, where that's the first part of the Bible where because of man's unified effort to rule and reign in the way they wanted, God chose to confuse their languages and disperse them across um, the land. And, but what's interesting is in Genesis 11, we have God thwarting um, the plans of men to try to exalt themselves, and so he confuses their languages. But in Pentecost, we have the reverse Babel. Because in Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes and falls upon the people, and they begin praising God, the one true and living God and his risen son Jesus in different languages. So that is God redeeming what Babel sought to undo. And so that's what we get to enjoy, and that's why we're, we read in these various languages during Missions Month to remind us that God's goal is that the gospel go worldwide. And we will worship together from pe- with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation and enjoy God's worldwide kingdom together. It's not a United States thing. It's a worldwide thing, and we need to be continually reminded of that. Also, just a, a personal invite for those of you who haven't yet registered for the conference. It's this weekend, um, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Um, I talked to Robert this week. He's really excited about coming, and it will be so worth your time, I promise. If God will give us grace and bless us, these talks will be very, very helpful. So I hope you'll register if you haven't already. The conference begins Friday. It's absolutely free. We'll have some meals and things going on on Saturday, and then we'll wrap up Sunday morning with Robert preaching for us next week. But he's excited about coming, and I hope you're excited about attending. So this will technically kind of be the last of our salvation stories. Robert will be wrapping up the conference. We're still, it's still the missions month kind of theme, but this will be the last of the sermons as we've been considering the various parables on salvation from the Lord Jesus that our other pastors have been preaching very faithfully and helpfully to us. And I've come to Luke 15, 11 through 32 this morning, where we'll wrap up with the, what's called normally the parable, parable, or parable of the prodigal son. Now, obviously, the the titles that these parables come to be known by are not inspired. We just name them for the purpose of organization in our Bibles. And in fact, the parable of the prodigal son is not a bad title for 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 the parable, for the story that Jesus is telling. But I think it can be somewhat reductionistic in its title. Because really, the word prodigal that we typically think about, it, it, it just means extravagant. The word just means wild. And so when we talk about the prodigal son, we're talking about that wild son that came to his dad and says, give me the money, I want to go party. But really, the prodigal one here is not the prodigal son. It's the father. The father is the one who's wild and extravagant. He's the one, ironically, that is demonstrating the greatest degree of prodigality or wildness or extravagance in the way he interacts both with his younger son and with his older son. And so I've called the sermon this morning, The Prodigal Father and the Two Lost Sons. Because as we're going to see, both the son, both the elder brother and the younger brother are equally alienated from the heart of the father for different reasons. So that's where we're going to go this morning. Here's the three points of my sermon. I'll go ahead and give them up front for organizational purposes. The first one, 
we're going to look at two kinds of people. And that can be a little bit general. So really what I want to talk about is two different ways people approach God. Okay? So that's what I mean by two kinds of people. Secondly, we're going to look at two kinds of lostness. And then thirdly, we're going to look at one way home. Two kinds of people, or two approaches to God, two kinds of lostness, and one way home. All right, so let's begin with two kinds of people. Jesus gives us these two kinds of people in setting up this parable. Now, we didn't read these two verses, but these verses at the beginning of chapter 15 shape the entire three stories that follow. Because as you'll know, and I hope you'll remember, the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15 is actually the third of three parables that Jesus tells about lostness. He shares, first of all, at the beginning of chapter 15 about the lost coin or the lost sheep. And then he shares a a parable about the lost coin beginning at verse 8. And then he picks up at verse 11 and shares a parable or a story about lost sons. So, but you notice in verses 1 and 2, the whole occasion that frames these three stories with Jesus giving us the two kinds of people that are setting up this story. So I want you to look at verses 1 and 2 at the beginning of the chapter. Luke writes for us, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So you see, the occasion for these three parables is you've got tax collectors and sinners, we could say younger brothers, coming to Jesus, and you've got elder brothers, Pharisees and religious teachers and scribes, grumbling about that, that the people who are coming to Jesus really shouldn't be the people whom Jesus is receiving. He shouldn't be receiving immoral people. He should be receiving moral people. So these are the two kinds of people that Jesus is presenting in this parable. And they correspond to the two kinds of brothers that we see in the parable that we're we're going to consider this morning. Tax collectors and sinners are like the younger brother, and Pharisees and scribes and teachers of the law are like the elder brother in the parable. Now, this isn't a new concept when we come to the Bible. This whole idea that that there are basically moral people, there are good people, and there are bad people, we might say. In fact, we can see this all throughout Scripture. I want to turn you to a couple of examples, and then we're going to come right back to Luke 15. Would you look over at John chapter 3? Just keep your finger in Luke 15, turn about 10 pages or so in your Bible, over to John chapter 3. And several years ago, I noticed that when John is writing his gospel, he will often do it by way of contrast. Now, this is very consistent with the way the Old Testament writers do as well. Oftentimes when you're reading, for instance, the books of Moses, that is the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Moses will often, by by the inspiration of the Spirit, begin to contrast different examples of Abraham failed in this, or but he succeeded in this, and we see the contrast, or Moses, or things like that. Well, in the Gospel of John, we see a contrast too. In chapter 3... We have Jesus interacting with an elder brother named Nicodemus. And in chapter 4, we see Jesus acting or uh, interacting with a what we might call a younger sister in the woman at the well. So in, in John chapter 3, you have a religious teacher, 
a, a, a person of upstanding moral character coming by night to come talk to Jesus about what he's teaching. Nicodemus, he's a religious teacher. He's a religious man. He's a ra- he calls Jesus by respectful names like rabbi and teacher. And he says that no one can be doing the things that you're doing unless they're sent from God. And then Jesus looks at him and says, listen, I know you're a good guy, but you need to be born again. But he does the exact same thing when he comes and talks to the woman at the well in chapter 4. Look over at chapter 4. Jesus is tired. He sits down. A woman who comes out to, to get a drink from the well, and he begins to interact with her. And as we learn from the story, she's a woman who's been married many, many times and is currently living with a man who is not her husband. She might be the prodigal type that we would typically think of. But Jesus says to her again, I have water to drink that you don't know anything about. You come drink from me. You need living water, not just this kind of water. And she ultimately comes to the Lord. And Nicodemus does later on too, but not, in, not necessarily in John chapter 3. But in John chapter 4, we see an immediate response of this woman to go right back into her city and begin to proclaim the Lord Jesus to all those who would listen to her. So you see this contrast in John 3 and 4. You also see the contrast in Romans. If you'll turn with me to the book of Romans, past Acts, on to Romans chapter 1. Paul opens his letter to the Romans with this very contrast as well. In chapter 1 of Romans, verse 15 and 16, Paul begins to lay out the gospel that he preaches. He says in verse 14, So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Well, what's that gospel? Paul, he says in verse 16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now listen to this. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And now he begins by talking about the Gentiles. We might consider these the younger brothers in the parable of the prodigal son. They're the ones who are wild and live recklessly. He begins to describe them in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He says in verse 22, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immoral God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And then he begins to describe some of their sins. He begins with homosexuality in verses 24 and 25. Then he moves on to various other kinds of sins in verses 28 and following, where he says, And since they did not fit, see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice, and they're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. And he goes on and on, listing in verses 30 and 31 and 32 these detestable deeds, these outward rebellious sins. And we might think, yeah, those are the sinners. Those are the sinners. But now he's going to come to the Jews. And he begins chapter 2 by addressing elder brother sins. When he says in verse, chapter 2, verse 1, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. See, the Pharisees and the tax collectors will look down on people like this. I don't do any of that stuff. He says, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You're just a little more cleaned up about it. He goes on and says, we know that the judgment of God falls rightly on those who practice such things. But verse 3, do you suppose, O man, 
you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God? So again, he's contrasting, Paul is contrasting that there's actually two ways to be lost. There's the external elder bro- or the younger brother kind of rebellion. There's the more internal moral kind of rebellion, religious rebellion, we could call it. He says in verse 10, But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Then he says in verse 12, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, but all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. He says there's two ways to be judged. You can rebel against the law, or you can try really, really hard to keep it without a Savior too. And he goes on to summarize this whole thing in chapter 3 when he says in verse 9, What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it's written, no one is righteous, no, not one. So with that in mind, turn back to Luke 15. I've shown you a couple of examples from Jesus' ministry and then from Paul's ministry, how they thought like this. They didn't just think there was one way to be lost, external rebellion against God. That's the only way to be lost. No, there's internal rebellion as well. Don't we see both play out in the story of Jonah? Think about this. Jonah begins the story as a younger brother. He's running from God. God comes to him and says, listen, Jonah, I want you to go preach grace to the Ninevites. Call them to repentance and I'm going to forgive them. And he's, no way. And he runs. God, as we know the story, puts him in the belly of fish, vomits him out, and he gets a second chance. Well, he does, and he goes and preaches. But then what does he turn into? He turns into an elder brother. He sees them, he, he sees them repenting, and he resents God for it. You receive these kind of people? See, so this is all throughout the scriptures, brothers and sisters. If we have eyes to see this, we see over and over again that there are two dramatically different ways to approach God that are both sinful. There's the moralistic way to do it that says salvation is found in just obeying the law and by living up to some standards, trying to be a better person. And then there's sort of the relativistic kind that says salvation is about finding ourselves and following our hearts. Now, Jesus' main target in this parable is the Pharisees. He's trying to expose their hearts by the way the elder brother responds and trying to show them that, Pharisees, you're like this. You're like this. I'm receiving tax collectors and sinners, and you're grumbling about it. Now, but there's a shocking truth in this parable. Jesus shows us a father with two sons who are equally alienated from him. Now, one has expressed their alienation by running away, and one has expressed their alienation by sticking really close. The gospel, brothers and sisters, means that this is something completely different. The gospel is not religion or irreligion. It's not just morality or immorality. Most everyone thinks that to be a Christian is just to try to be a good person. That's what the essence of... And that is not the essence of what Christianity is at all. Now, the gospel produces different kinds of people that are moral, yes. But that's not at the root of Christianity. 
The gospel's a third way. It's a totally different way of being human. It's a radically different approach. The moralistic grid says the good people are in and the bad people are out. That's what the elder brothers say. Good are in, bad are out. Whereas the younger brothers would say, no, no, no. The liberated are in, the oppressed are out, oppressive are out. But the gospel says none of those are right. The humble are in, the proud are out. That's the gospel. See, it doesn't separate people into categories of good and bad. Those are worldly categories. The Bible paints a totally different way of running from God. There are two very different ways people can run from God. They can run away by breaking the rules, or they can run away by trying to keep them in their own strength. Because both are ways of controlling God. Both are ways of looking away from your own sinfulness and managing your own self-salvation project. But it's running nonetheless. So those are the two kinds of people that set up this parable for us. Now let's get into the parable. Okay, we're going to look at, in the second place, two kinds of lostness and then one way home in the third place. So let's camp on the second point, the two kinds of lostness. First of all, we're going to look at the immoral son or the younger brother, and then we're going to look at the moral son or the older brother. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm trying to give these kind of broad generalizations, but I, I'm saying that the lostness that is the, elder, the younger brother is, is, is engaged in is the lostness of self-discovery. Okay? Now, that's a very, very common form of salvation that's preached in our culture. In fact, that's probably the dominant gospel that is preached in our culture by unbelievers today. The way to happiness and fulfillment is self-discovery. Figure out who you are and go do it. But that's not a new teaching. That's as old as Eden. That's what Satan has been telling people since the beginning. Don't submit to God. Do your own thing. It's the same gospel we hear every day. You hear it more than any other gospel. I promise. Because you're in the world more than you're in the Bible, and I am too. Okay, so that's the gospel we're hearing more from our culture is the gospel of self-discovery. But there's also a gospel of moral conformity out there too, which is in the more conservative strand of life. And I'm not just talking about politics. I'm talking about just good, upstanding people. There's that moral conformity gospel that we're going to talk about as well. So let's, first of all, though, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Let's talk about the immoral son and the lostness of self-discovery. Now, we know this part of the parable well. I trust, and so we'll just review it quickly. In verse 12, we see, the, we see this younger son coming, and he wants the father's money. He wants his third of the inheritance right now, which basically means he wants his dad dead. And he's asking for the money so that he can go spend it the way he wants. Now, this, hits the, this would no doubt hit the father's heart on a couple of different levels because, number one, he's basically wishing his father out of his life, but number two, he also knows that he's going to go waste the inheritance. He's just going to blow it. He's not going to invest it. He's not going to turn it around and build more for the family. He's just going to squander it. And so in verse 13, that's exactly what he does. He leaves home, and he went, go, went and on his self-journey quest and goes and lives how he wants to live. And as a result, in verses 14 through 16, he loses absolutely everything. And then in verses 17 through 19, he makes his plan. He's going he's to return back home. 
Now, if we were to paint this younger son in some modern descriptions, we might say, you know, this is the, this is the rebel. This is Fonzie. You know, this is the individual. This is the, 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 the rock-loving free spirit who moves away from home and shuns his parents' ideals and wishes and heads to L.A. And li- or lives in some big metropolitan city and brings the girl home he's living with for Thanksgiving to his Christian family. You know, that kind of stuff that we typically think of about just this individual who's going to do what they want to do. Well, where does that ultimately lead? Well, depending on how reckless the person is, because there are people who can sometimes manage their immorality, you know? You know what I mean? Most people are not this radical. They don't just say, I'm just going to go blow my life up. No, they just, they just slowly ease into it, and they lose some things here, but they're basically disillusioned, and, but, they're, but they're chasing it. But they know that they can't get too radical, you know, but they're going to live for themselves, but they, but they manage it a little bit better. But in the end, it's always a dead-end street. The rock band Simple Plan wrote a song several years ago called Loser of the Year. And in it, they write the following. They say, there's a lot of talk, there's a lot of talk about me. People are lining up to meet me, and I'm on the verge of celebrity. So what do you think about that? I've got friends in high places, Louis Vuitton suitcases. Look at all the pretty faces. So what do you think about that? So why do I feel like it's all just a show? You make me want to shut it all down, throw it all away, because I'm nothing if I don't have you. What's the point of being on top, all the money in the world, if I can't blow it all on you? So send the cars back, put the house on the market, and my big dreams too, because it's all so clear that without you here, I'm the loser of the year. So, I mean, he's obviously talking about a relationship with his wife or his girlfriend or whatever. Like, if I can't enjoy this, you know, with the person I love, then it's all a waste. And that's, that's, that's true in, insofar as it goes. But the, but the point, the larger point I'm trying to paint here is that we're always the loser of the year if we just glut on self-discovery apart from a love relationship with our creator. It's always a dead-end kind of street. And so how thankful we should be for Christ coming, not just to fix us, but to transform us and to save us and to redeem us. Dane Ortland says this about Christ's mission. Christ was not sent to mend wounded people or wake sleepy people or advise confused people or inspire bored people or spur on lazy people, or educate ignorant people, but to raise dead people. See, we were following Satan even if we didn't know it, Ortland says. The power of hell was not something we yielded to, it was something inside us. Divine wrath was something so deserving that we were its very children. We didn't just occasionally slip into the passions of our flesh, we lived in them. It was the air we breathed, what water is to fish, inordinate ugliness was to us. We inhaled rejection of God and we exhaled self-destruction and well-deserved judgment. Beneath our smiles at the grocery store and cheerful greetings to the mailman, we were quietly enthroning self and eviscerating our souls of the beauty and dignity and worship for which they were made. We not only lived in sin, we enjoyed living in sin. Now, some of us may say, well, that really doesn't describe me. You know, I grew up in a fairly law-abiding home. We went to church. I kept my nose clean. I've never been arrested. Been pretty decent to my neighbors. But here's where Ortland concludes. He says, we can vent 
our fleshly passions by breaking all the rules or we can vent our fleshly passions by keeping all the rules. But both ways of venting the flesh still need resurrection. We can be immoral dead people or we can be moral dead people. Either way, we're dead. And so that's what this parable teaches us and that's what we come to in the second place concerning the moral son. So we've looked at the immoral son and his lostness of self-discovery. Now let's talk about the moral son and his lostness of moral conformity. Look in verse 25 where we get what the elder brother is doing. He says, now his older son was in the field. That's what moral people are always doing. They're working hard. Right? They're not out wasting time like these sinners. I'm going to work. I'm earning my keep. I'm paying my bills. I'm doing the right thing. He was suspicious of that partying kind of culture that was going on right now after his brother came home. And notice his attitude about the whole thing. Verse 27. Your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. Verse 28, but he was angry. He refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Ever. You wouldn't even give me a little, little goat, and then you've slayed the most expensive animal that you have, that we have, that I have. It's supposed to belong to me. It's my inheritance. See, elder brothers are just as sinful, even though they're way more externally moral than younger brothers are. They're angry. They're self-righteous. They're easily offended. They're self-pitying. They hold grudges. They look down on others. And they experience life as joyless, crushing drudgery. That's who the Pharisees were. And that's who moral conformists are apart from Christ. See, being moral, according to the parable here, is a really spiritually dangerous condition. To be able to kind of kill at life is really dangerous spiritually. Because I imagine a lot of you here this morning, even young kids, kids, you, you may be really, really good at things. You can... You can you can do pretty well at school. You can obey your parents pretty well. You basically can see, you know, when you see those shows on television, I would never act like that. That's stupid. Look at those kids behaving that way. And you can start to feel a little bit better. Listen, that's dangerous. That's really dangerous. Because you can start to feel like, I don't need Jesus. See, I don't really need Jesus. I bet they need Jesus. You've seen, you've seen the t-shirts in Walmart, y'all need Jesus? <laughs> we bought a couple of those for some family members too. Not because they needed Jesus, but because they would like the shirts that said, y'all need Jesus. And, uh, but that, that can kind of be our response, right? You know, y'all need Jesus. I don't need Jesus. You need some Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we need, we need Jesus. That's what it needs to say. We need Jesus. <laughs> and, then you say, and then on the back it says, especially me. Right, Because being moral is spiritually dangerous if it's pursued for some other reason than to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now, as Christians, we do have changed hearts, and we do love the law of God, and we do want to obey Him, but it's to get Him. It's to please Him, not to get something from Him. 
See, that's the difference. See, lostness in the moral conformity kind of way is just transactional with God. It's like, I'm praying, I'm reading my Bible, I'm going to church because I want God to do good things for me. And the way that you can tell is that when God sends trials or difficulties into your life, you say, I'm out on this. this, this stinks. He ain't worth serving. All he does is make my life harder. See, it shows that you weren't in it for God to begin with. God will test you that way. He'll send hard things into your life to see if you love him. To see if you're going to stick with him or are you just going to bail on him because you were only in it for his treats and goodies that he threw your way. That's what the elder brother was in it for. He was in it for the treats and goodies of the father, but not for the father. Just like the younger son wanted the treats and the goodies of the father. They just wanted them in different ways at different times. But in the end, who found it harder to come to the father? The younger brother or the elder brother? The elder brother. And that's why I say it's a spiritually dangerous condition. Now, this does not mean it's any easier necessarily to go live your wild life for 45 years and say, I'll get right with Jesus then because it's easier to come home. I said maybe easier, but still, you don't run that risk. (laughs) Because people die normally as they lived both immorally and morally, okay? So moral immorality doesn't put you in any other better state for grace than necessarily morality does. But it is interesting that immoral people flocked to Jesus, whereas moral people were the ones who cried out for his crucifixion. And brothers and sisters, we may think that we are living in a, in a radically immoral culture, and we are. We are. We see younger brother behavior all around us. That gospel of self-discovery is being preached all the time. But we also, especially in our particular moment in this, in this time period, we have a, long, a, a rising tide of modern-day Phariseeism that is vicious and evil, and it's called cancel culture. One of the ways that we observe modern-day Phariseeism is this whole idea of cancel culture. See, gospel culture people who believe the gospel, Christians, we attack problems, we attack bad ideas, we attack harmful behavior, we attack wrong beliefs, we attack toxic systems and selfish entitlement and abuse and various other forms of sin. But cancel culture attacks people. See, gospel culture says, we don't condemn you, go and sin no more. That's what Jesus did with the woman who was caught in adultery. But cancel culture says, We condemn you totally, therefore live in unrecoverable shame and be dead to us. That's the way our culture has polarized. And it's deadly, and it's sick, and it's elder brotherism. It it feels like a stoning, only you don't get the privilege of dying. And that holier-than-thou-ism is just as deadly and toxic and dangerous as any sort of licentiousness is. Because according to what our Pastor Thad preached for us a few weeks ago in Luke 18, when the Pharisees, they were those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they looked down on others with contempt. See, the pious Pharisees' bravado and their righteous indignation was just a mask for their own self-justification for their own self-righteousness. See, forming a mob around a group of sinners was the groupthink 
of deeply insecure small men who were looking for a way to medicate their own fragile egos at the expense of a scapegoat. A scapegoat who was no more shame-worthy than they were. And that's how sick and twisted elder brotherism can become. Tim Keller, commenting on this, says, Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending the Bible-believing religious people of his day. However, in the main, our churches today do not have this effect. The kind of outsiders that Jesus attracted are not attracted to contemporary churches. We tend to draw conservative, buttoned-down, moralistic people. The licentious and liberated or the broken and marginal avoid church. That can only mean one thing. If the preaching of our preachers and the practice of our church members do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus did. If our churches aren't appealing to younger brothers, they must be more full of elder brothers than we like to think. See, and that causes us to give some self-examination. Like, are we drawing both the moral conformists and the self-discovery? Because that's what we want. If we're being authentic gospel people, we should want to draw the immoral and the moral. We should want to draw those who try to keep the rules and try to break the rules. Because the gospel is something totally different. It's a third way. So one of the ways that we can grow in this as a church is that instead of giving condemnation, and obviously we preach against sin, obviously, but we need to preach against all kinds of sin, not just our hobby horses and not just the ones that are easy to pick on, but all sin, the the whole panorama of sin, both the elder brother type sin and the younger brother type sin. But instead of just giving out condemnation like elder brothers, rather why don't we give benedictions like the Father does? Kiss them before they repent. Right? Love them and show them grace before they've had a chance to reform themselves. Not look at them and say, well, as soon as you clean up your act, you can join us. No, brothers and sisters. We say, we give, offer a gospel of grace that sets you on a path of transformation, but you don't have to get transformed first. What if instead of being on the hunt to catch people doing wrong, we went on the hunt to catch people doing right? <laughs> what if instead of looking for someone to curse, we started looking for someone to bless? What if instead of naming people according to their worst behaviors and features, we name them according to their best and most God-reflecting ones? Scott Saul says... Even when a damning narrative is true, which means even when the most horrible thing that can be said is true, even in this case, the humble restraint and self-reflection should be our starting point. He says, when Ham exposed Noah, that's the son of Noah, uh, for his drunkenness and nakedness, Shem and Japheth did not join in the exposing, but they reversed it. Instead of forming a mob based on outrage toward their drunken dad, the two brothers look away from Noah's nakedness and cover him. In doing this, the two brothers also covered and restored Noah's good name. For this, the two received a blessing and Ham received a curse. And we all tremble at the thought of receiving a curse for tearing down a name and doing violence to a soul. So what we see here is the way the son, the father treats, or sorry, the way the sons treat the father in both the younger brother running from him and the elder brother staying close to him, both wanting his things, both not after the father at all. So let's conclude then by looking at one way home, point number three. 
So what I want to do here is just point out three ways that the father brings these boys or tries, calls them to come to him. First of all, we need the father to come out to us. If we're going to get out of our out of our moral funk or our immoral funk, out of our moral rebellion or our immoral rebellion, then the father's going to have to come out to us. And he comes out to the younger son and he comes out to the older son, doesn't he? While the older son is a, or younger son is a far way off, the father stands up, pulls up his robe, and does a dead run toward his younger son. And before the son can start getting out his pre-planned speech about, oh, how sorry he is and, and how he just wants to be the father's slave and how he's determined to pay back what he took and all that stuff, the father just grabs him, hugs him, kisses him, says, praise God, my son has come home. I love him. I welcome him back. Let's throw a big party, kill the most expensive animal. That no, no expense, no expense. No expense reports necessary for this. Pay whatever's necessary. Charge it to me. We're welcoming him back in. The father came out to him, but the father also comes out to the elder brother. The older brother's steaming, listening to the music, hearing the dancing, sweeping the floor angrily. And what does the father do to him? He comes out to him too. And he says, son. He doesn't say, you rebellious moral kid. No, he says, son. You've always been with me. Yes, you didn't do what your younger brother did. I want you at this party too. I want you celebrating. I want you here. This party is for all of us. Yes, I'm throwing it in his honor, but I want you there. I'm throwing, And you should be happy that he's come home. You should be thrilled. So see, that's what we need, brothers and sisters. We need the Father to come out to us. The father responds to the younger brother in verses 20 to 24 by inviting him into the party. And the father responds to the older brother in verses 28 through 32 by inviting him into the party. And we need the exact same. And we have the exact same invitation this morning. The father extending his arms wide open to us and say, you're always with me. Come on in. Second, we must repent, not just of our sins, but also of our godless reasons for pursuing righteousness. See, repentance is has two different sides to it. It not only has the unrighteousness side, it has the self-righteousness side. So a true definition of sin then is not just breaking the rules, but it's putting ourselves in the place of God as Savior, Lord, and Judge, just as each of the sons sought to displace the authority of the Father in his own life. See, there are two ways to be your own savior. One is by breaking all the moral rules and setting your own course like the younger brother. And the other is by keeping all the moral rules and being very, very good so that you'll feel like you're better than everyone else and don't need a savior. See, everyone is trying to use God and get power and control for themselves. They're just going about it in different ways. Everyone apart from Jesus is on a self-salvation quest and they're either doing it by breaking all the rules or by keeping all the rules. We need to get outside the categories of good and bad people. Everyone is wrong. Jesus is right. Everyone is loved. And everyone is called to recognize this and change. (laughs) See, irreligious people need to repent of their unrighteousness. And religious people need to repent of their self-righteousness. It's repentance that's needed for all. We also here see the true meaning of grace. See, the gospel, like I said earlier is not just religion, it's not irreligion, it's not morality or immorality, it's not moralism or relativism, it's not conservatism or liberalism. 
It's distinct and different. The gospel is good news. It's not good advice. It's good news that those who humble themselves and repent of their sin, trust in Jesus alone for their complete acceptance with the Father, will receive his righteousness as a gift and be declared his child forever. That's the glory of grace, and that's what the Father is extending to both of these sons. Listen, it's not your record. It's not what you've done, not what you haven't done. It's me. Come to me. So we must repent not just of our sins, but also of our godless reasons for pursuing righteousness. Thirdly and finally, we must rely on and rejoice in what the Father has provided for our salvation. We must rely on and rejoice in what the Father has provided for our salvation. Now, here's the question. How was the younger brother put back in the family? Forgiveness was very costly, right? Now, I want you first of all to notice what didn't get him back in the family. His working for the father, right? That's what he wanted to do. See, younger, and we got to be aware of this, younger brother types who have sinned greatly externally and outwardly hear the gospel as self-reformation. They hear it as, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to do better because I want to I wanna do the right thing. But, and that's what, he, that's what this younger brother does. He comes, he comes out, and he goes, oh, he's just flogging himself. I mean, he's just beating himself up, and he's saying, I blew it, I blew it, I blew it. Uh, maybe he'll make me a slave. I don't know. I'll, I'll probably never pay this back, but I'll be back in the family. See, his temptation was to get to work. See, when God is working on a younger brother, that's going to be their temptation. They're going to want to get to work. And part of that's a good impulse. It's not all negative. Okay, but we need to be aware that the temptation of younger brothers when they come to themselves is to want to earn our way back into the Father's favor. In other words, that elder brother part of us kicks in because we're all younger brothers and elder brothers in different ways. But that elder brother part of the younger brother can start to kick in and be like, okay, I got to be like him. I gotta be like my older brother and, 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 and work hard and earn my way back into the Father's favor. So we try to work harder and be better people. But listen, what you need is just to fall in your Father's arms. That's all you need. That's all the older brother needed to do. Just put the broom down and hug your dad. Put the broom down. Hug your dad. That's all he wants from us, brothers and sisters. Let's put the brooms down. Let's hug our dads more. But what did it cost the younger brother to get back? Or what it should, I should say, what did it cost the father to get the younger brother back in the family? Well, he got a robe. He got a ring. He got a place back in the inheritance. But the only way he could do this was at a greater expense to the father. Right? It cost the father more to put the younger son back in the family. And it all came at the expense of the elder brother. And the elder brother knew it. And that's why he resented it. Because not only had he blown his part of the inheritance, the younger brother that is, but now he's taken mine too. He's taken mine. See, the younger brother had already taken away his rightful portion, and now every cent of the father belongs by right to the elder brother. Everything. Once that younger brother hit the road, everything's mine. And now he comes back in, he's starting to take stuff away from me. And so, when the father says to the elder brother, everything I have is yours, son, the elder brother, like we said, that's the point, dad. It's all mine, and you're giving it back to him. That's mine. See, every robe, 
every ring, every fatted calf is the elder brother's. The salvation of the younger son is not free. It's extremely expensive. (laughs) It's free to him, but it's expensive to the elder brother because the father can't forgive him except at the expense of the elder brother. But brothers and sisters, here's the good news. We got an elder brother too, and he's way different from this one. That's the point of this parable. Hebrews 2.11 says, Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says to God, I'll declare your name to my brothers. Jesus Christ is the true elder brother. He came to earth and truly obeyed his father and never disobeyed his orders. And he truly has the right to all that the father owns. But instead, he came out and he searched for us. And he found us in the pigsty and he carried us home on the shoulders to deliver us to the father. See, if this parable were like Jesus, the elder brother would have said, he ain't going nowhere. As soon as he gets out there, I'm going to get him. And the elder brother sells whatever he needs to, to, to get to get on that horse or that chariot and take the, all the way down and get that younger brother and pick him up and say, you're coming home with me. I love you. Your father loves you. Come on. And loads him on his back and carries him back to the father. The elder brother should have been the one dropping him on the father's doorstep. And our elder brother does. Our elder brother does. That's what he did for us. He had the rights to all that the father owned, but he spent it all. He gave us his robe, his ring, his palace, his wealth, all at his own expense. This is our elder brother. And this is what makes us love him and cling to him. Because when we squander his mercy, Jesus gives us more mercy. The things that make you cringe the most are the things that make our elder brother hug the hardest. Our haunting shame is not the problem for him. It's the very thing he loves most to work with. Our sins don't cause his love to take a hit. They cause it to surge forward. On the day that we stand before him, we're going to weep with relief and be shocked at how impoverished a view of the mercy heart of Jesus we had our whole lives. We would, we'll say, oh, Lord, if I only knew you were this good, I never would have sinned. And he said, the point is, I am that good. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you are a God like this, that you are a God who extends to the moral and the immoral among us grace, that you say to us, the humble are in, the proud are out. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Acknowledge that you need me. Acknowledge that you can only be saved by what I provide. And I will give you everything you need forever. And Jesus, we celebrate you as our great elder brother who at sacrifice to yourself, impoverishing yourself, taking upon yourself humanity and clothing yourself as a poor Middle Eastern Galilean, that you lived that life of perfect righteousness for us and you earned our salvation, every single bit of it, and call us as broken, weary, sinful people to just fall in our Father's arms because your work has provided everything we need to do so for all eternity. So, Father, we celebrate you this morning. 
Son, we celebrate you this morning, and Spirit, we celebrate you this morning as the one who opened our eyes to all this glorious good news. Would you open the eyes of those who have yet to see it so that they too may taste and see that the Lord is good. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Let's stand.